Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and it is my goal to help you upgrade your human performance by guiding you towards improved sleep, nutrition, fitness, mobility and stress management. If you can work on just one of those, you'll be on the pathway to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your athletic performance. If you're interested in joining me on this journey, please check out my SWOT Inner Circle where you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just £1. Please email beth at thetriathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes. My guest today is Dr. James Risley, a consultant in emergency medicine at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. James and I have been working together now for almost seven years and it's been an interesting journey which I hope that we can outline today. Initially, James came to me with, like many triathletes do, ambitious goals centered around Ironman and mostly focused on his training. In the intervening period, we've worked together to adjust his approach to one which focuses on achieving a better lifestyle balance and optimizing human performance. As you'll hear, James's life is no different to many of you listening here today. It's filled with daily challenges from many different quarters and the goal has been to find a sweet spot for James to exist within. It's not been a linear journey. He's concentrated on the long-term goals rather than the short-term gains and he's been very successful and it's exactly what I can hope we can articulate in the conversation. Some of the topics we cover include how using the Aura Ring has helped James to understand sleep requirements and how life stresses influence overall recovery. Finding a sustainable approach to everything, love, work, nutrition and training. Learning to ignore the outcome and trust the process. Why getting to the start line is the big win. The real benefits of studying for an MBA. Lessons from working on the front line during COVID, such as adapting expectations, stress management and thinking clearly under pressure. Daily habits and rituals that James follows. And finally, being the best you can be every day. So without further ado, let's crack on with today's guest. Welcome to the show, James Risley. Hello, Rory. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure, mate. It's, uh, it's taken us a while of working together to get to this point, hasn't it? It has, yeah. Yeah, no, it has. And um, it's only taken you, what, 250-odd uh, podcasts to get finally down to me, but uh, I'll 100, take that. I'll 100, take... 194, or both. It, it might be yours, it might be number 200 when it comes out. Yeah, no, it's, uh, no thanks for asking us on. It's um, been interesting how this goes, really, because I, uh, I'm not traditionally overly comfortable about talking about myself to a degree but um but yeah no hopefully you've got something to share which will be interesting for people listening well i think you have uh, i mean you you know you've you've seen my evolution into this high performance human um setting and i know we've talked about this in conversations and i think some people think well to be a high performance human i'll have to be a high performance athlete i'll have to be performing at the top level i need to be a ceo of a large company or you know um, earning a lot of money as a, an entrepreneur or something but Anybody can be a high-performance human. I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but um, you know, any of us can be as- aspire to be a human performing at the highest level that we can, regardless of what we do, whether it is um, a teacher, whether it is somebody running their own business, however big or small it is, whether that's somebody who is um, in, in a position of employment and seeking to make triathlon their main hobby you know we can all get more out of our lives and that's what the whole high performance 
human concept is about. And so, you know, in the time that we've worked together, I've seen you go through some evolutions of your own lifestyle. Um, you've made several progressions in your job. You've sort of changed tack a little bit in your um, sporting ambitions. Um, and yet you still managed to hold down a very responsible job, which we'll talk about in a moment. And, and that job has been a lot more stressful for you and your NHS colleagues in the last uh, 14 months or so. So we'll, we'll come on to that. So um, let's let's start by sharing. Uh, how, how long have we been working together, do you think? Is it it um, must be over 10 years. Well, actually, I think it was about six minutes, probably 2014. Oh, okay. Not that long. So, yeah, because I think I did... I did my first Ironman in Bolton in 2013. And then we started working after that when I realized I almost died. And I thought I probably need a bit of uh, bit of help. If I'm going to keep doing this. Okay. <laughs> well, you're still alive, so I must know something. <laughs> yeah, clinging on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, coming up to seven years then. Yeah. And uh, let's talk about what you do for a living. So you're part of the NHS. So... Uh, explain a little bit more about uh, what you're doing in there. Yeah, so uh, a consultant in emergency medicine, um, currently working out uh, kind of West Midlands, Worcestershire. Uh, and I'm a, I've kind of moved into the medical management and leadership roles of uh, being a clinical director for some other services. So gastroenterology, endocrine and uh, frailty. Um, so kind of transitioning away from purely clinical. Um yeah, and then and kind of supporting that at the minute, just doing a doing an MBA, which is uh, which has been absolutely fantastic, um, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a bit, and and kind of trying to over the last year keep my kind of mental and physical health as well as it could be during uh, the kind of challenges we've been facing. Okay, so you've been to medical school, but um, you started out as a lawyer, didn't you? So I guess you must have gone left school and thought, I oh, know, I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> well, it was kind of the other way around. I um, so I did med school and then and then kind of started started surgical training. Um, Realised it wasn't for me. Felt completely lost and ended up um, going down the law route. Really, um, I think I was a victim of one of. Um, those things in life where, you know, when you're 16, 17, you kind of have this pressure whereby you have to make a decision early on as to, you know, well, who, who are you going to be on? Not necessarily what you're going to do, but almost who are you going to, you know, who, who are you? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, gosh, we, I'm, I'm still learning about myself now. I'm 38, right? And, you know, 16, you haven't got a clue. And, <laughs> and I think I, I chose... Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm I am very interested in what I do, and I've always been interested in sciences. But um, I've always, deep down, been interested in business. My my dad, uh, my uncle, have had a kind of self-made, um, very successful firm down in Kent, which I always thought I'd end up going into. And I thought, well, you know, when I was a teenager, that's all that that's always going to be there in theory, that route. But medicine probably isn't going to be. So um, I was also, which probably comes into my mindset, quite quite a driven chap and always looking for challenges right and I thought well actually just to get in is going to be a hell of a challenge um and then you know five years at uni it seems like a good career um let's give it a go so yeah ended up doing medicine um and to be fair I remember kind of during the degree me and quite a few of my mates was as we were going through thinking um it might not actually be necessarily the right thing for me and you end up with this this mindset of it will be better when, you know, and it'll be, 
it'll be better when I'm doing clinical stuff as a student, or it'll be better when I've graduated and I'm in, in a house officer, junior doctor, or it'll be, be better when I'm a more senior doctor, that kind of thing. You end up getting this kind of um, mindset where you just keep keep going. Um, may not completely sit right with you, but you've also invested a hell of a lot of time, right? Yeah. Um, and and so what so what then happens is you know the the sacrifice that you'd have to make to shift to something else would it just gets larger. But so I ended up um, becoming an a, a ear, nose, and throat and head and neck surgical trainee. Um, and again, that was really almost by um, by a, a kind of process of exclusion, really, because I I'd, I'd always thought I was a surgical mindset, right? You know, pragmatic. Um, I like making decisions. Um, I don't like things dragging on, and I like solving problems. Um, and as when I was a junior doctor, I did most of the surgical specialties, so kind of colorectal, vascular, peds, orthopedics, neurosurgery, and none of them actually floated my boat. And I thought, well, um, but deep down, I'd kind of built up this mind of set that I'm a surgeon. So, um, so the only thing that I hadn't really done was ENT. And it got to a point when I had to make a decision as to what to apply for. And I thought, well, um, I'll sod it. I'll apply and do that because in theory, you know, it's, uh, to, be, to be frank, I thought easy on calls, good private work, you know, still surgery. Why not give it a go? And so I kind of applied for it. And I got a training job in it without ever doing it. And again, because of part of my mindset, I then completely started to get this sense of identity with it. And so I became even more embedded in something that I've never really done, if that makes sense. And so I ended up um, trying to do a PhD, essentially in my spare time at Warwick in um, thyroid cancer whilst, whilst training. Um, me and a few of uh, other chaps we were training with set up a surgical journal um, and really kind of went at it 110 mile an hour with, without ever actually stopping to think, is this the right thing? And, and after a couple of years, I just thought, I'm, I'm, I'm miserable. And... I was actually profoundly unhappy. I was in quite quite a bad space um, and was feeling completely lost. And I, I was pretty much depressed, to be fair. And I think what uh, I kind of hit a bit of a defining moment where I kind of realized I cannot keep going on like this. Um, so I pretty much decided to jack everything in. Um, I couldn't work it out then what was making me miserable. Um, so I thought, well, I'm just going to stop everything and clear out. So I actually, I split up with the, the girl I was seeing, living with at the time, um, decided to, to jack in training um, and pretty much started to try to look for an answer really. And, and it was then when I pretty much twigged, well, it's probably that I'm depressed, right? You know, that I have a low mood. Um, and it turns out I essentially had a bit of an endogenous depression where I just wasn't making enough serotonin. And so that was just dragging my mood down permanently which was then being reinforced with all these negative um, behaviors that I had built on years and years and years and years of pushing myself to succeed, but on a basis of, you know, when I was really looking at it, of a lack of self-confidence, right? Um, uh, how, how, old were you, how old were you at this point, James? Well, I was, what, 27, 28? Okay, so you haven't gone to law school yet? No, no. Right, that, okay. That comes that comes in probably the next 12 months or so. Let, let me just rewind a little bit then back to yeah. school days. Yeah. Yeah. So we, did you go to a, a private school where 
educational results were high on the list and it was really important to them that you know the high high achieving pupils got these good grades because that made the school better because that's the sort of school I went to and um, and when you were talking about the pressure to decide what you want to do at the age of 16 you know do you want to uh, you're going to go to medical school you're going to Cambridge this is the Oxbridge group here so these yeah. are our high streamers you know and they're we're expecting big things of those and I think some of them did go on to do um big things and then there's this lot here you guys are going to go to the red brick universities and you're going to you're going to, and, and these guys here these are the polytechnic students they're in the bottom stream so we're just going to tell them that they've uh, pretty much wasted their time here i was one of those people and <laughs> um, i still don't i'm 57 now and i still don't really know what i want to do yeah <laughs> actually i'm pretty set in what i'm doing now but it was uh, it took me until i was in my 30s to to really decide that and i i like you i was thinking what well, what do I want to do? I don't want to be told that I have to do this now at 16. It's far too young. Yeah. I just want to have a bit of fun, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. And my school reports, if I look through them, are constantly saying Simon could do better. You know, Simon's, Simon's, if this was the sports academy, Simon would be one of our top pupils. Unfortunately, it's not, and neither is he. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, of course, um, you know, the, the, uh, the teacher saying, well, at least you've got into Polytechnic, Mr. Ward. So it's not been a complete waste of time. Hi, great. Thanks. Thanks for your support. Yeah, I mean, I went to um, I went to a grammar school. Um, yeah. Well, I was Leeds Grammar School, so. Yeah, so it's kind of like in between, isn't it? You know, it's where there's an expectation that, you know, you go to uni. Um, and, you know, I was never a very stellar student at school. You know, kind of, I remember in year nine being told um, I should do kind of, you know, instead of doing, say, three sciences, do the combined ones because I'm not bright enough to do, to do them separately which I think was the point where I went, you know, well, screw you. I'm going to show you kind of. <laughs> so, so is that the driven, is that the driven bit then the desire to prove people wrong? Yeah, well, I think it was. And also, you know, when I, when I was younger, I was bullied at, um, at various schools, mainly because I was, well, I, I don't know whether it's wit or sarcasm or whatever, but um, I, I've never kind of shied away from telling people what I think. And, you know, when you're young and, God, Christ, back then I had really kind of buck teeth as well. So I was literally like a sitting duck for this stuff. And uh, so I think I think I always had, to, to be fair, probably low self-confidence, low self-esteem and, um, you know, as a kid. And I think I used to drive myself forward to prove my worst through results. Did yeah, you... Uh... Were you were you engaged in sport at all at school? Because a lot of those grammar schools were also very high on their sporting uh, achievements, weren't they? Yeah, so so I used to be quite good at football, um, to be fair. So I was pretty useful at football. Um, and I was at uh, the Cheltenham Athletic School of Excellence when I was kind of 15, 16. And that was, that was kind of, I think I was the year behind, I don't know if you remember, kind of Scott Parker, Jermaine Defoe. Well, Scott, Scott Parker, what's he's the Fulham manager now? Yeah. Lee, Lee Bowyer, would he have been at Charlton then? He, he, was, and, and he, was, he came to Leeds and famously disgraced himself in the whole Woodgate affair. Less than McDonald's, didn't he? Um, yeah. That was uh, so. They were a couple of years ahead of me, and um, it's funny because I was kind of I was a goalkeeper, right? And I was short-ish, about five foot five when I was about fifteen, but and quite tubby. And I think the thought was, I'm pretty useful, but surely I'm going to kind of go upwards and thin out. And I didn't. <laughs> I just stayed the same. And you know, I'm five foot nine, and that's never going to be a Premier goalkeeper, right? So not unless you've got not unless you've got springs in your feet. No, no. And um, yeah, so so that kind of died a death, really. And uh, I remember when I was kind of 16, you know, it dawning on me that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make that. So that's fine. So it's a bit of a bit. And then when I went to uni, um, 
I actually started rowing, which is very bizarre. And I think part of that, and again, that was, I remember when I was in sixth form and someone kind of bet me that I couldn't do it or something like that. They said, oh, you're off to uni, you're going to row. And, and, uh, and they said, I couldn't do it because I'm so short or whatever. And so I thought, oh, sod it. So I joined up as a novice crew. And, and again, I was all right at it. You know, I've never set the world alight, but I got into the novice first day, went to the um, National Indoor Rowing Champs on the, you know, on the Ergo. Oh, I've done, I've done that one. Yeah, it's painful, isn't it? It's, it's only two kilometres, but my goodness, it's the, it's the most painful two kilometres or six or seven minutes of maybe eight minutes of uh, stuff that you'll probably ever do. I know, if you think you suffer, it's funny, like, you know, how you suffer an Ironman is very, very different to suffering, like, in a sprint try or a, or a 2K erg, right? It's uh, different types of pain. Um, well, we've seen, yeah. those, um, we've seen those videos of them testing for the, the British rowing team, you know, where Pinsent or Redgrave, they, d- they do the test and then he just, he can't even unclip from the, uh, f- you know, because they're not, they're not clipping pedals, are they? They're straps and your feet are in those little sort of holsters. And so if you fall off, you basically twist with your feet in position and the whole thing tips over on top of you. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's awful. You know, and, you know, it's, it's funny when people talk about who's fittest, you know, just generally about fittest person on earth. And it doesn't really exist because there's so many people out there who's fit. They are fit for what they do. And mm-hmm. it's actual fitness, uh, whatever they do. Um and uh but then actually i started getting knee pain after my second year rowing because that was the first time that i actually really started kind of asking train and um yeah ended up with really, really bad knee pain ended up seeing a, a surgeon and i had a cyst on my uh my meniscus that mm. uh, was basically irritating the fat pad in my knee and caused me chronic tendonitis so i had an operation on it and then my bloody tendon didn't heal properly and so what's what actually ended up is ended up with a degenerative patella tendon in my right leg where it's essentially just scar tissue and ended right. up with chronic pain in it um which again and i'd forgotten about this actually until we're chatting now but i um because i i'd got into the the royal navy as well at that point so um i thought about um uh, there's quite a lot of people in my my year who were in either the uh the raf navy army and and i thought Back then, oh, you know, it'd be awesome to be a trauma surgeon in the Marines. So, uh, so I went to, so I passed the Admiralty interview board. Yeah. Down, down south. Uh, yes, down at, down at, well, I went, I went to the AIB down in, um, in, in, was it in Plymouth or Portsmouth or somewhere? Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah. I didn't and, get in either. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny enough, so, so I got in and, uh, and I then walked down to the, um, to the medical. So I literally spent, you know, was it three days there? You do all the tests, whatever. And um, yeah, you, you walk down to the medical. They took one look at my knee and went, nah, not having that. So um, I'm, I'm detecting a pattern here, James, of you say that you're not particularly talented, but you work hard and you're inspired when people say you can't do that or it's not for you. That drives you on more. Um, I wonder how many people who are listening to this have, have um, nodding and, and thinking yep that's how I got into triathlon or that's how I started doing marathon or swimming because somebody told me I couldn't do it you know and I wanted to prove them wrong um, because that you know there's you know there's this whole thing about coaches there are some people that you you call them out and you you were uh, really tell them not working hard enough because you know that those people are going to want to show you that they can and then there are other people who the coach knows I need to put my arm on this guy's shoulder and sort of say come on you know you can do this so um you know do you think that those teachers and people knew that that was your personality and knew that that would spur you on to greater things um I I don't to be honest (laughs) and I think that was probably part of 
part of what drove me was this kind of thought of, well, no one really gets me, I think. Oh, so you, it's you against the world then? Well, I think that's probably what it was, yeah. And it was more a case of the feeling the need to constantly prove myself to everyone around me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's actually happened, I think, over the last 20 years is that I don't, I don't feel that now at all. But what's happened is I've become so hardwired. Um, and actually, we probably might talk about it in a bit about Driven Book by Douglas Brackman, right? Yeah. About the genetics and, or epigenetics behind driven people. And, and actually, it's, it's probably something that's been inherent within me. But I think in the past, I had a negative driver to unlock it, as in, you know, self-confidence or low self-esteem, need to prove myself. Whereas now, I have a very much a positive mindset. I genuinely feel bulletproof when it comes to my sense of self. Um, and so when it comes to then unlocking all of those positive attributes that allow me to achieve what I want to achieve, I'm doing it now with a mindset of positivity. And that's massively changed over the last 20 years for me. And that's, mm. that's really made my life so much more valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, but firstly, recognizing that and then using those sort of traits that you have for positive benefit. Because actually, um, being driven like that and trying to achieve and working yourself to an early grave, if you like, for some people is, is very destructive, isn't it? If, if it's done the wrong way, if it's an anti type of behavior rather than the positive behavior. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. It's funny because, you know, what we were talking about before when I kind of decided to leave surgical training, leave medicine was that was the, the kind of epiphany that I realized was that I was still <coughs> trying to live a life where I was defined by what I did. And actually that's why I felt locked into it. Didn't feel I could, to, could walk away from it. Um, and, and that is a real negative drive and it just ends up, you know, it's like blinkers, right? You know, you, you, well, it's a cliche, isn't it? But your greatest strength is your greatest weakness, right? If you've got the ability to stick the blinkers on, put your head down and charge towards a, towards a goal, you've got to be bloody sure you're going in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. Well, you need a fair amount of courage as well to suddenly decide that that's not, um, that's not the direction for you, particularly when you've invested sort of, you know, a large chunk of your life at that point you know if, if it's happening in the at the end of your 20s then you're that's that's almost you know at least a quarter of your life to that point been invested in that journey that's mm-hmm. like getting in your car in london to go to um to go to scotland and realizing when you get to newcastle you don't really want to go there uh yeah <laughs> yeah i can identify that because we talk about this in a bit as well but i'm kind of at a similar crossroads now you know um but yeah. Okay. So um you've decided that you don't like medicine. You've 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 packed it in. Um so then what do you do? So well so then what I did is I did um I'd met at that point my ex-wife who'd already got a job out in New Zealand um for for twelve months. So I thought, well, I I'd kind of decided to to leave training by that point and go and live with my brother in London. So I, I locumed, you know, basically taking ad hoc shifts for three or four months. And what I'll do is work for, you know, two or three weeks, save a load of money, then fly out to New Zealand for a few weeks. And I did that about four or five times and realized this isn't really sustainable. Um, so I did, uh, so I just got a job out in New Zealand doing A&E. And before that point, I'd never done A&E. And um, it was this in this nice kind of district general hospital in a lovely, awesome place called Taronga. Um, if everyone's, you know, if you ever think of going to New Zealand, Mount Maunganui, Google that one. It's, an, it's a really picturesque, beautiful place. And 
Uh, so we lived there for six months, traveling around, like working and traveling around in our kind of uh, spare time, New Zealand. Um, and I really enjoyed it, Amy. Um, there was, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. But but by that point, I kind of already decided that, you know what, I can't go back to the start of training something again. I was just couldn't really face it. Um, I knew that working abroad is very, very, very different to working in, in the NHS. Um, and I already decided to, to look at law. And so I did the graduate diploma in law, that kind of law conversion degree. So I'd already applied for that um, for, when I, for when we came back from New Zealand. Um, but it was really New Zealand, to be fair, that unlocked this, this part of my life of endurance. Because when I had been rowing and I was getting all this knee pain, had the operation and whatnot, I, I couldn't run. So I didn't actually run for about three or four years. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my exercise was in the gym. So I just used to do weights and, and was in reasonably good shape back then. Um, uh, but it was actually when I was in New Zealand, you're in this cultural environment where everybody is doing stuff. Yeah. Right? You go to work, you look at the car park, every bugger's got a, a bike, a surfboard, a kayak on the back of their car. Mm. They are immediately, four or five o'clock comes, they're down on the beach. Yeah. yeah. Well, first thing in the morning, they're out having a surf. And it, it's this mindset, you know, people would go, you know, it, it was normal for people to do a half Ironman on the weekends off. Like it wasn't a big thing, you know, because it's just this mindset out there. So, um, and, and that kind of coincided with, um, we went on this holiday to Port Douglas, I think it's in Australia. And I, and I went for a run on the beach and I was barefoot. And, and it was funny because I didn't get any knee pain. I know we've spoken about this in the past, um, but it was this whole thing of, I thought, well, hang on, I'm running, what's changed? Because I've got no pain in my knee, but I'm running. And it was because I'd shifted to, to barefoot running and my, my heel strike didn't exist oh, anymore. Okay, yeah. And so that then basically, uh, it was around the similar time where I read an article on barefoot running and I thought, well, I'll give this a go. Um, and I bought a pair of those Vibram five fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and I just started running. I think I, you know, started off 500 meters around the block and then built up and I did a half marathon out there in them. And, uh, and then a load of the docks were doing a, a sprint triathlon. And so I thought, oh, bloody hell, well, I'll do that as well. Um, and so, yeah, I did my first sprint, sprint triathlon out there. Um, and funny enough, I did my first open water swim there. So, um, to make you chuckle. So it was, it was a kilometer, right? And I remember I had no idea what I was doing. It took me 42 minutes, right. To do a kilometer. And I think I came out almost last. And I remember the announcer, they're going, and here comes James Risley. He's coming out as if he's won the bloody thing. Cause I was literally coming out with my arms up. Like, you know, I can't believe I've done this. And I'd first, love- first victory of the day. Finish the swim. Exactly. I didn't die. Um, and I would have loved to have seen my little, you know, if you had the Garmin on, where what I'd actually swum because it must have been all over the place. But can I let me just interrupt you there though, James, yeah. because um in 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 some ways, um we when we do our first triathlons, uh, because we don't have much expectation, getting to the end of each stage is almost like a mini victory. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how then we start to take stuff for granted. And, you know, the next thing is you come out and you're looking at your watch and you're very disappointed. You know, if, if, I, if as a commentator, I could see everybody coming out of the swim with their arms aloft, yeah, got through the first bit, really pumping the air and getting so enthusiastic about just completing something and, and having their own little mini victory rather than comparing themselves to everybody else. I'd be, I'd, I'd be so much happier as a, as an MC if I saw that sort of behavior. But that, that's exactly it. Right. And you know, I, um, when I came back actually, so that, that was the same year Chrissy Wellington won. 
her first Conan. And so that 2007. Kind of, yeah. Pardon me? 2007, I think. Was that the first one? She was. was it? Um, I yeah. thought, well, oh, I might be wrong then with the dates, but I think that had popped up somewhere. And so Iron Man kind of came on the radar a bit and did the usual, they must all be idiots, bunch of retards, you know, doing 12, 13 hour races. Oh my God, that's ridiculous. I could never do that. Um, and then the more I thought about it, the more I ended up doing, um, when I got back to the, to the UK, signing up to Ironman Bolton. Um, and obviously not having a clue what I was doing, but the, the point you mentioned about it being relative, you know, I was on the bus going to the start with a chap who'd never done one before. And we kind of sat, said to each other, you know, this is the best time we're ever going to do this because we've got no expectations. We just want to finish this thing. We want to finish it. We want to stay alive. And, and actually everybody else here who's done it second or third time, they've got some other performance measure in the back of their subconscious where, you know, just crossing that finish line may not be enough for them. 2008, actually. Yeah, it was 2007. Yeah, first world championships. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, so I'm way off then because it would have been 20. 20- 14, oh wait, I can't remember. No, 2012, I can't remember anything. Well, I think she, I think she actually stopped then. That was her last, that was her last victory, 2011. Oh. Seems like a long time ago now. Yeah. 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 Mm. Oh, well, you see how the world's, the world's raced by you without you realising. Don't, I know, crikey. So you, you came back to the UK, so um, you did, uh, you did your first Ironman, that, so that was when you decided that we need to work together. Well, my life, yeah. I mean, what it took me, I mean, I, I remember in the, in Pennington Flash, because again, I was so underprepared, didn't know what I was doing. Um, and all the open water swimming I'd done had been in New Zealand in crystal clear seas, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously Bolton at six in the morning or whatever it was, you know, is you, you get in the water, A, it's freezing, B, it's brown, C, you're getting punched and kicked in the face, right? You know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it is a washing machine and you're just getting smashed. Mm-hmm. After about five minutes, I remember turning onto my back and looking back at the pontoon going, I can't do this. I'm just going to swim back because I just can't do this. And I don't know what it was. I just kind of, something just clicked. And went, no, no, you're going to do this, James. And it was an Australian exit, right? So you did the first lap. And I remember getting out and seeing 45 minutes on my watch and thinking, oh my God, I felt like I'd won. Because like I've done it off, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna make the cutoff for the swim, and I was in the second lap was like one of the, the happiest moments I think I've had in my life up until that point. Because I was like I might actually do this. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So got off on the um, yeah got off, yeah managed to get out in time, which was nice. We got on the bike, and uh, yeah, and then the bike was oh utter misery because I'd done all my training on a turbo trainer again, hadn't really gone out much on the roads at all. I'd done it all in a turbo watching the Sopranos in the study. Um, and just pooling along and then realizing ah right actually this is this is really really hard and i was right at the back of the field and i had the uh, the sweeping van coming around because uh, i was i literally made made t2 probably by about 15 minutes wow um, and i was absolutely broken and my dad was there and uh, at t2 and i said to him that pop i'm done like i can't i cannot now go and run a marathon because it's a really hot day as well and i thought i cannot do this and then this guy gets I see this guy in T2 changing his leg, right? <laughs> got one leg and he goes to take off the attachment for a cycling spot and he's running attachment. I thought, if this guy with one leg who's just done everything I've done is now going to go and run a marathon, I, I've got to at least try, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, so I then, um, yeah, kind of walked around the marathon and got around in about 16 and a half hours. Um, 
and yeah it was it was hard it was hard and funny enough the um i ended up getting into was it craft on 220 i think that like the uh, the next month because the sunburn that i'd got right so because i had been out there the longest and it was a hot day and i hadn't used any sunscreen that I, I had got the most horrific sunburn on my back um, and the little kind of mark that you put on the side, you know, the race number with the Iron Man thing on it, that had, ta- that had essentially tattooed on my arm for a year. Really? Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah. And, you know, crossed the line, thought, right, never doing that again. You know, um, that was awful. And then I'm just, you know, I'm just thinking there of the Sopranos. So as you're going around, you must have remembered some of the quotes. <laughs> old, old, old Tony there saying, oh, poor baby or something like that. <laughs> Those who want respect, give respect. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but it, you know what? The environment is so cool. And um, and then with a lot of these things, you the, the human brain forgets pain quite well, doesn't it? And, well, here we are seven, eight years later, you know, having done, what, five, six of them. And Well, know. we've all been there, including me, crossing the finish line of that first one and thinking, I'm not doing that again. And then uh, um, my first one was in Canada in 95. And so that race used to get was so popular it will be filled up within 24 hours so you had to basically turn up limp down to the convention center the next morning and stand in line which you didn't want to do after having finished an iron man 12 hours before stand in line for an hour to fill your form in and get your entry in for next year um yeah how quickly if we forget eh yeah i know i know so you when when we first started working together you had quite lofty ambitions for iron man didn't you uh, yes, and lo- by lofty you mean utterly unrealistic. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, you know, and I wouldn't say that you're unusual. You know, maybe you could expand on your uh, ambitions and get the rest of the audience nodding in a, in agreement well, with you. Well, it's it's that Kona thing, isn't it? It's it's the Kona halo of qualifying for the the Ironman World Champs. Yeah, mm. you know, I think anyone that's ever raced raced an Ironman, you, you see these super athletes. That are doing it in eight nine hours and and you just look at them in awe of you know just what what kind of fitness and sp- human specimens they are incredible and uh, and then the more and more you watch the kind of youtube iron man videos of conan and whatnot builds up this myth doesn't it in your head and um and so yeah we we started off on this kind of road to conan didn't we three-year plan mm. three-year plan of you know, building on each successive year with, at the end of those three years, having a shot at being able to um, to qualify for Kona. Um, yeah. Haven't quite done it yet. I'm sure we will get there at some point. So go go back to that um, that initial stage, 20, of us working together, 2014, 2015. You were going through a fairly turbulent time. Um, you were trying to balance the training for triathlon and those ambitions versus uh, working in back in the medical. So you've done law by then, but you're back in the medical profession. Um, you're working in A&E, which is quite traumatic, I would imagine, until you've developed that rhinoceros hide. Um, yeah. And then you and then you've got to uh, you, you've got weird hours to work, night shifts, on call, weekends. Um, all of that, all of that uh, is not conducive to somebody i'm not saying it isn't done and there's plenty of examples of it is but it's not it doesn't make trying to train for a, an iron man easy never mind trying to qualify for kona so um yeah. how were you balancing your life back then yeah it was it was tricky back then because i was i think during those first two years i was um working as an a middle grade in nottingham 
Um, and because the good thing with shifts, what it did is it, it gives you the flexibility to train during the day and work later and, and whatnot. Um, but I was also, that was when I was still, so the graduate diploma in law, I did that over two years and I did a, a master's degree in health law at the same time. So I had this kind of two year period where I was, I basically planned out how many shifts I need to work a week, uh, a month in order to pay the bills, trying to fit in the kind of what, 12 sessions or 11 training sessions that we had per week, and then trying to fit in enough time to study. Um, and you know, it was, uh, it, it was hard because the first thing I thought was when we started working together, whatever you put down, I will do. Yeah. I just thought whatever you put down, I will do. And that will automatically like a sat nav. Yeah. Cause we've talked about this in the past, how you, you kind of, you know, guide, yeah. You, you are trying to unlock an individual's ability to get to where they want to go. And, um, and I just thought, well, you know, it, it's almost inevitable. I just need to put the time in, but you cannot, you cannot fake and you cannot rush physiology. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's that whole thing about stress. What I didn't really twig back then really was the amount of stress I was putting on my, my body under, um, which means that you can't really perform at the highest level. Yeah. Once you've got so many competing plates that are spinning, you can't really focus everything on, you know, to, to get the best out of each individual element of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's probably at the end of those three years where it kind of ended up going through a divorce as well, which was, um, really really unexpected uh and that we we ended up stopping working together i think for about a year didn't we because i just had Uh i just had too much going on really i had too much life stress financial stress and all that kind of stuff that i just basically stopped um but but kind of that's where all the skills that we'd worked on together up until that point enabled me to get through that right so it's having the self-awareness of you know how much stress can anyone take because the, the point is human beings will break. Yeah. yeah. Machines break. Right. And we are nowhere near as robust as a machine. And the point is not to get to that point. The point is yeah. how, how can you get the best out of all of the strengths and positive attributes that you've got as a human being to enable you to live the life you want to live in a balanced and sustainable way? And the way I'd approached it, that before we'd really started working together and doing the first part of when we were coaching together was um, head down, smash on, it'll be fine. But that's not a sustainable way of doing things, right? And so often you'll hear about people that, oh, you know, I deny man on six hours a week or, you know, or whatever. You'll find that, you know, when, when you're trying to keep too many plates spinning, they will eventually fall. It may not be at that point. Yeah. It might be a year or two after, but all the damage is done during that point. If you're not careful. So it's been very cognizant of how much can I take mentally, emotionally, and physically. Right. Mate, just you're a doctor. So you have more understanding of physiology than the majority of people. Right. Mm. Uh, because that's part of your training. Um, but do you think that even in that privileged position of understanding how the body works, um, it's easy to think, well, yeah, but I'm different, so I'll carry on doing this. You know, like you talked about, you can't, you can't, um, you can't detour from what physiology will do. You can't fast track it. You can't make yourself fitter in six months just because you want to. There's a there's a certain process that has to take place, and and then a period of adaptation and building over over many years. Um, but do you think there's a tendency to ignore that? Is, is that worse being a doctor and having that knowledge or is it the same as everybody else? Um, I, I think it's, 
it helps you buy into what you're doing a bit better, right? So, you know, when when we were talking about why you're doing the training sessions you're doing, you know, I think uh, trying to get anyone to come along with you on any journey, no matter what you're doing, whether you're trying to lead an organization, department of work, or, you know, coach people, whatever, people could understand what you're asking them to do, right? And I think the physiology is so tricky to get your head around, especially now in the time of where everybody's an expert, right? You yeah. to, you know, everyone can do a podcast, everyone can publish a paper, do whatever they want. And and actually, there's so much stuff out there now. It's so hard to just try to navigate your way through it. So I, what it did really, it helped me understand where you were coming from and buy into what you're asking me to do. Yeah, because if you're asking me to spend 20 hours a week doing stuff, you've got to kind of trust the person that's asking you to do this training. Yeah, that's not just going to be a waste of your time. Mm. Um, did, we ever get, did we ever get to 20 hours? Oh, quite. That's a good point. It might probably be a bit too, uh, I don't know, we might have been 18 maybe once. Mm. Know, but we averaged, what, 12, 11, 12? Probably more like it. And that, to be honest, that I would say for, for most people that have, have uh, well, for most people that have employment and have a family, you know, and are in their thirties or forties. That is probably the average of what most people get. You will see these um, unique individuals who are averaging eighteen to twenty, but you find that they they're probably really they're probably really focused on that. They're probably not doing much else. They lead very quiet lives. They're probably not ambitious or driven in the uh, well. I'm, I'm going to do those misservice, and no doubt we'll get some emails from people saying you've described me, and I'm not like that at all. But the most the most number of people I've met that are averaging 18 to 20 hours a week are very focused on the training and have man- and have managed to put a lot of other stuff aside in order to get to that position. Um, and I do think that when 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 we get athletes that come along and say, right, I'm ready to do this now, and I'm going to bump my training up from 10 hours a week to 15. If you've been averaging 10 hours a week for the last five years, unless your life's changed hugely. And you've given up work, or you know, retired, or you've won the lottery, or or something. Um, you're not going to make that jump. I think you, you, there's a there's a natural level for most people in what they can commit. There's two things, there, isn't it? There? You've got conditioning. So a lot of those people that can do that and sustain that are conditioned through years and years and years of strength and mobility. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. forgets. Yes. You know, and, and the other thing is about minimum minimum effective dose, right? You know, if you can get done in twelve hours. You know what other people will spend 15 16 17 hours doing well that's mm. just makes more sense to do that way and and then you've got the chronic overload the chronic stress that you're putting your body under because even if you're doing low intensity stuff that's still you know if it's not adding to your life i mean don't get me wrong I'm sure you know training 20 hours a week if a lot of it's pooling around on your bike you've got no other cares in the world it's probably good for your men- mental side or whatever but the reality is when you get it done 10 11 12 hours then you know that that's yeah. So I mentioned at the beginning that you've had a significant change in your view of how you live your life and how you approach training. Um, um, there's There's been a fair amount of nagging from me on the way to uh, focus a little bit more on sleep and a little bit more on your nutrition, but coaches can only make so many suggestions. Eventually, the, the individual that they're working with has to make their own decisions on that. So, And I can see you wearing your Aura ring there. So um, <laughs> listeners will have heard me talking about the whoop that I am wearing on my wrist. The Aura ring does pretty much the same stuff. So uh, where where would you say that your changes um, 
changes in approach started to happen? What was the catalyst for that? So I think it was probably when I think after about three years when we'd been working together and I was then going through a divorce and then basically had to stop everything. And it gave me that natural break from the train I'd put myself on with this. I've got to get a Kona. I've got to get a Kona. I've got to get a Kona. Yeah. And then I had that kind of period of turbulence in my life where you go through a hell of a lot of reflection, right? And actually a lot of the, a lot of the positives of my life and what I thought made me a good person were for whatever reason being used as an excuse to say why I wasn't a good person. That makes sense, right? So you, you naturally go through all the bits of, well, look, you know, I do train a lot. Is that a good or bad thing? I don't drink. Is that a good or bad thing? I don't go down the pub every night. Is that a good or bad thing? You know, all these bits then kind of go through your head and then you, you just start to realize that actually, well, I know it's a cliche, but the destination is kind of irrelevant, right? It's the process. It, you, you've got to have a, a very well-balanced way with which you live your life and wherever you get to is inevitable. Yeah. Almost because if you, if you concentrate on the basics, you know, you know what, what do you love doing? If you love the process, you will succeed, right? Because it doesn't become a chore. It doesn't become difficult to do, to motivate yourself. You know, if you love what you're doing. And so that was one thing of just going, well, actually, do I really, really like swimming, running and biking? I was like, well, yeah, actually I do. I do actually love it, you know, and, and actually, does it matter if I get to Kona? No, it doesn't, because I love doing the training, right? Um, but that then also, when you then take that performance pressure away from yourself, you then realize, well, actually, um, what is the, when you take that kind of psychological limiter off of you, of I've got to keep going and going and going and going because if I'm not training all the time, I'm not going to be able to get that fit. You then realize, well, actually, I've missed all the basics here, right? You know, because if you don't eat properly, you don't sleep, you don't recover, and you know, you're not resting, um, you're not going to have any foundation on which to build and move forward. So, and also then when I when I had that period where I couldn't train because of you know time essentially. Because I, I, I did about a year and a half of nights, I think, solid night shift just to, to, to keep going. And, um, you know, anything, all you can do is concentrate on sleep and eating. And I remember, you know, us talking about sleep with uh, was it Nick Littlehouse, yeah, uh-huh. about um, cycles of sleep and how to best, you know, especially when you're in shift work, working nights or whatever, um, how do you keep healthy when you're doing that kind of work? And, and that's when it all started to come together. You know, a few books that are, you know, sleep, the chimp paradox, you know, recently read driven, all those little bits. And you start to, your mind settles a little bit. You get a bit of time, a bit of clarity. You've taken pressure off yourself. You get a bit of time to think. And then all the things that people have been telling you, like you, you actually not just know it, but you believe it, right? Because it's the same thing, right? You can, you can tell someone, they can nod their head and kind of go, yeah, yeah, you're right. But unless they believe it, yeah. And I think there's a distinction between the two. And it, that just takes time, right? You've- You've, you've mentioned that book, Driven. Um, we also talked about you being driven anyway. So I guess uh, when you saw a book called Driven, you thought, oh, I have to read this one then. Tell us about uh, some of the things you learned from reading that. Um, so, well, I think one of it is that, um, and this is kind of what Steve Peters goes on in Chimp, right? Uh, Chimp Paradox. It's, it's okay to be as you are. Actually, some of the behaviours that people have and some of the ways they live their life, 
it's not a bad thing right so just because you feel you get up at five in the morning and you want to do some reading and some studying or then and then go for a swim and then go to work and then come home and go out on the bike and do some more reading or whatever and this kind of feeling of kind of restlessness or feeling of having to keep pushing and keep looking beyond right that's actually okay that's not a negative problem with your psychology right um, it's just how some people have been wired and it's not a good or bad thing you know it's just we we've now got i think you know what Bratman goes on about is how society has shifted and, and and kind of developed at such a pace over the last 50 years that a lot of people are no matter what your mindset are struggling to find a place in it now trying to find out where to fit right mm-hmm. and and actually it's, you can almost kind of accept sometimes well you might not fit and that's all right. But you could fit in a you could fit in a space for one person, couldn't you? <laughs> which is which which is you are. And I think so doesn't that all come back? So firstly, that seems to um point towards mindfulness is being aware of where you're at. Mm. Yeah. Um there's also this thing about identity, you know, who you are. And there's a there's a certain amount of narcissism, isn't there, involved in all this? And ego is what do other people think of us? What what will I look like to other people? You know, how do other people view me? Um, if you can get over, if you can get out of your own way with that one and stop worrying what other people think and think, you know what? Actually, I'm in this little space here of one. There's only one person can fit here, and I'm in it, and I'm quite happy. So uh, I'm just going to occupy this space. And um, you know, when you I, you think about Buddhist monks, you see, you see them, they, they move around life in, in a, this very calm bubble. They seem unperturbed by things that are going on around them because they found inner happiness and peace. And whilst people that are looking at them are probably thinking, yeah, well, I'd like that, but you know, I need to have my new Ranger over or I need to have a big house or I need to fly private. Actually, mo- most people would probably secretly want that inner calm and peace that they've achieved yeah, yeah. if they could have it with all of life luxuries as well. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent, right? Um, yeah, it's um, the mindfulness thing you're talking about—that kind of inner calm and taking the pressure off yourself. You know, it's becoming even more important now because it's almost impossible to switch off, right? So, you know, I, I you know, I'm not on Facebook or Instagram or tweeting and that kind of stuff. Don't really do any of that anymore, mainly because there's too many inputs, right? And, and well, actually, yeah, it's. It, it, it's how do you then manage the environment around you to get the best out of yourself, right? And and that's what a, a key thing really is about, you know, understanding who you are, what your strengths are. And you, you do get to a point in life where really, you know, there's no point really focusing on every single weakness, trying to make a, a, a weakness a strength. You might as well take your strengths and make them awesome, right? You know, and we've had this in try about swimming. Yeah, I'm never going to be a, a sub one hour swimmer. I might be able to be a sub one ten swimmer. And that's actually all right. That's not awful on an Ironman. Um, but is it worth spending all those extra hours trying to chip off that those minutes by minute by minute when actually I could be on, you know, I'm probably going to get much more out of that on the bike and the run. Well, th- there may be some people who listening to this who would quite happily swap a 110 with you for their <laughs> 130 um, and thinking, wow, I wish I could swim that fast. There's probably somebody who's, um, who's, just dipped under two hours for whom that was a big achievement for, for a, you know, 3.8 K and thinking, well, I'll swap you 130 then that you're unhappy with. Um, Absolutely. But that's it. Success is relative, right? 
and you know, my it, first open water one k took me forty two minutes. Yeah, well, and there you go. You see how your goals and, and aspirations have changed, and you were you were delirious to come out of the water, having just sort of lived to tell the tale, and then, and then all of a sudden, swimming swimming the same time for three point eight k becomes uh, becomes uh, un, uh, you know a point of unhappiness because you can't improve. And actually, now for me, it's getting to the start line. So, you know, what the last one I did was Austria. Was that a year and a half ago? And for me now, getting to that start line is actually the win. Yeah. I think that's how people should really view everything, right? Because what you've actually done is you've identified something that scares you a little bit, right? That you know is going to push and challenge you, that has got uncertainty around it. And it's got risk. And it's got risk of failure. And what you've done is you've decided to plot a course to try to succeed at that despite all of the uncertainty and risks, right? And, mm. and, and actually completing that and getting to a start line or something is the win. And because whatever happens after that, especially in Ironman, you know, you can have so many things go wrong, right? You know, your bike can break, your hamstring goes or whatever, and, and, and you might not finish it. So it's, it's that whole thing we talked about at the start process. You love the process, love what you do, trust in the process, get the basics right, you know, sleep properly, try and eat properly, get some mental downtime, take pressure off of yourself. Who cares what time you do? No one cares, right? Because success is always relative, right? It's always relative to where you get, where you're coming from. And so for me, if I go and finish an Ironman now, you know, that relatively, you know, when you see some people that are doing a count to 5K, they've overcome a huge number of, of, of more challenges to do that. And that is actually far, far greater achievement than me going out tomorrow and stumbling across the finish line of an Ironman, right? The last year, any well, it's the last year has been challenging for everyone, hasn't it? Some more than others. You've been working on the front line in A&E, so you've been seeing people come in since sort of last February um, suffering with COVID, and you've then had to process those people. You've also been having to manage, um, you know, the overwhelm of, of the NHS. Um, tell us what that's been like, and how you've had to readjust um, some of the other things you do in your life in order to make make some space for the additional stress that, that you've had to deal with pretty much nonstop. Yeah, it's. Um, I think the first thing to say, obviously, with this is that you know, no matter how bad it's been for me or any, or any of my colleagues, you know, we're still here. You know, right? We've lost a lot of people to this, um, and and it's not not just the people that have died from COVID. It's all the people that haven't been able to be treated over the past year because of COVID for their other conditions. Mm. And there's lots of people that are suffering and are going to come to harm from this. And so it's an obviously absolutely bloody tragedy. Right? But, but the, the flip side of that is right. Like, well, you know, as a, well, you know, the ED, it was um, ED and critical care, you know, pretty much everybody to be fair. I think everyone's been hit by it really hard. And um, what the, the biggest thing for me that, really hit home was this concept of stress doing it right because i think a lot of people see stress as a kind of a, a psychological element right you, know, you you can't cope mentally with something you know you feel overwhelmed in your head and, and actually that's not to my mind anymore what stress is stress is a physiological response to your body feeling overwhelmed and under fire right and, and actually it's the what happens as a result of that yeah so you put yourself in an environment. Mentally, you can feel in control, right? But you can be, you know, and this applies to firemen, policemen, people, you know, that are in environments where there's 
everything is on fire or there's chaos around you. Mentally, you feel in control, but your body is reacting to this perception of, of um, threat. So naturally, your heart rate's going to go up slightly. You're, yeah, you're so gonna... you're in a fight or flight situation. So you're yeah. producing cortisol and adrenaline 24-7 yeah. almost, aren't you? Absolutely. So your cortisol's up, your adrenaline's up. And, and actually, so what happened, it's a physiological response on you, right? Because it's, it's because of what we did is we, well, one thing you said to me is, well, actually, to be fair, James, you know, you, you live in your healthy life, like as healthy as you can be and keeping in, in the best shape you can has enabled you to get to this point where really now you are hopefully able to withstand the stresses that's going to come, right? So we're able, you know, we, we wound back training and focus more on sleep, on food um and try and keep the basics right and again taking that added pressure off of not having to worry about training for an event or anything like that just keep active keep healthy um eat eat drink sleep properly um but when you when you're at work the the, the main thing really because one what i've struggled with really is has always been to be fair diet and stress eating and whatnot and um and uh, one thing we've with COVID was that uh, people just donated loads and loads of food to the NHS all the time. So you're going up to work and there's just chocolate sweets everywhere and you end up, you know, 10, 11 at night just eating rubbish, but it gives you that short burst of serotonin, right? So that kind of stress response to eating that then actually makes you feel worse. Um, but the, the, the big challenge really with COVID was managing those around you and the stress and anxiety of your colleagues and the people that you're trying to lead through through this crisis, because there's been a huge amount of uncertainty throughout the start. Yeah, so you know, by and large, you know, we, the NHS did, did did a good job, right? But you know, there was no plan for this, really. You know, I think we've got to be, you know, without one get too political, whatever. You know, there should have been a plan for a pandemic, and there wasn't really. So, I, uh, I had a conversation with somebody who's in the police force the other day, and um, she was articulating the same level of stress that you are, saying that, you know, they they're trying to keep the peace, they're trying to carry out the government's wishes, um, they're in they're in between a rock and a hard place, and they're getting flack from all quarters, and everybody seems to want to hate them. You know, the the, the politicians say they're not doing a good enough job, the public say they're not doing a good job, so she feels like they're under fire, and that creates its own stress as well as the stress of doing the job. It's the stress that you get from um, from the external sources as well, and it seems sometimes that, like that's the same for the NHS because you and your colleagues have been working twenty four seven to to fight fire here, you know, fight this coronavirus, and and it's still going on, isn't it? And and yet it seems at times that um, some members of the public are appreciative of that. And, you know, we all stood outside our houses for 10 weeks and clapped. And I guess some people did that because everybody was doing it. And some people did, did that because it was genuinely heartfelt. Mm. But it, it, there's been also been a lot of criticism and that that must hit home pretty, pretty hard for you and your colleagues as well. Yeah, and I think it's going to build probably now over the next 12, 18 months, right? Because we're very much in this mindset of, right, we're going to get back to normal. So expectations have shifted. And mm. the kind of the first wave was very much a wartime mentality. Yeah, everyone's in this together. We're all happy to make the sacrifices we need to make in order to get through this. And then second wave, which we probably saw with all the lockdowns, you know, uh, it was people were getting fatigued with it, right? You know, and, and now we're getting to a point where the expectation is, Everyone's going to start having their elective operations, their appointments back. They want all this kind of stuff, but we, which I get completely, and it's the right thing to do. But the the staff are knackered, right? They are exhausted 
And, you know, we're going to have to play catch up for a year's worth of work, plus everything else that would be expected to be coming in. And well, I saw, I, saw today the, uh, I saw today the BBC headline, 4.7 million people are behind on their operations, the worst since. So now, oh, it's the NHS's fault, obviously. Yeah, it, it, mate, and this, is, this is the thing. It's going to be about expectation management, right? Because, and this is what, you know, we're doing this whole thing with all the uncertainty around, you know, not having enough PPE, which we ended up, we did have. Um, but there was all that uncertainty. Um, internal processes, how to keep the staff safe at work was an absolute nightmare. Um, how to not give people in the hospital, other patients who don't have COVID, how do you not accidentally give them COVID? Yeah, so loads and loads yeah. of complicated issues have been going on and lots of people getting criticised left, right and centre, lots of people trying their best, um, lots of people actually stepping up and, and what this has shown is, you know, it's shown the best and worst of people, right? You know, and people that have got real good leadership skills who are natural leaders and they've really come forward, which has been fantastic to see. Um, and it has brought a lot of us together in the service. Um, but I think going forward is going to be really tricky. And I think all we want is a bit of a breather. Um, I don't think that's going to be doable, um, really. Uh, so basically, I think we're just going to have to hope that we get, you know, a little bit of uh, the media can just chill out a little bit. It'd be nice. So we, let's go back to your aura ring. You've oh, been yeah. wearing that now for what, a couple of years? Uh, yeah, about yeah, about a year or so. And what 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 did you notice during all of that time with that additional stress that we've just talked about? What did you notice in terms of your HRV, your sleep? Did you notice that there were significant changes in um, amount of time you were spending in deep sleep or in REM sleep? Did you notice that you had more disturbances because you were waking up? You know, any anything significant that you noticed that that you could attribute just to the strange circumstances we've been living through? Yeah, so I mean, the aura ring's been been great in a way because I, I I got it specifically for the sleep element of it because um, you know that is one of the most sensitive indicators, isn't it, as to stress, your physiological stress, right, and uh, and your HRV, and actually my what what I noticed is actually all of the things essentially almost stayed the same in regards to my physiological stress insofar as I was training less, but the stress I was having at work was higher or it felt higher, right? So the two kind of evened out. So the effects on my body was the same as if we'd been training full time, right? Right. Um, my sleep, what was, what was interesting was um, it, it, didn't, it didn't get too badly affected, to be fair, at the start. But what I found was I started working later shifts because we had to change the patterns we work. So that in itself then led into the fact that my sleep pattern was getting quite disordered. So um, even though you try to do your best to try and keep things as organized with your, your sleep as you can, you know, sometimes if you're getting home at midnight, you know, you, you're still going to start waking up early anyway. So I wasn't getting that kind of restful state of sleep, but I think the, the good thing from it is because we're taking a common sense approach as to how to, to get through this with training wise, I wasn't stressing my body too much. Um, so my likelihood of getting ill, cause that was the whole thing, wasn't it? It's how, how to keep well and healthy during this. Um, and that's, and that's quite an interesting lesson, isn't it? Is that you, you uh, I often talk about stress bucket and you can, you know, stress comes from all sorts of, um, points and we've, we've really got two types of stress. We've got uh, the positive stress, the fight or flight, um, mm. some of which is a good thing, but too much is not. 
And we, then we've got the rest and digest, which is the sort of, so you've got sympathetic, which is fight or flight. And then you've got parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. And you need to balance those out. Yeah. Um, yes, if you go for an easy run and you take your headphones off and you're engaged with the environment around you, that could be meditative, but it's still a stress. So there might be a, there might be sort of balancing out of that exercise. But if you do too much training, that's, that's another, that's another addition to your stress bucket. Um, if, if you carried tried to carry on doing like most people if you try to carry on doing all of that training and you have the added stress eventually the bucket overflows and of course then you get a flood and of course that we know how damaging that is so we don't want that so in order to stop the bucket overflowing you've got to turn off the tap somewhere so you turn down the exercise tap so that the other tap can carry on filling and that's how you manage to maintain the balance by having a a sort of a a sensible dialed back approach to exercise but that also comes back into now being a believer in the process of how you live your life, as in living a healthy life, which, you know, uh, this kind of, you know, when, you, when you described at the start, what is a high performance human? Well, I think it's just someone that um, tries their best every day, literally just try to be the best you can be and try to look after yourself and those around you so that you can get the best out of life, you know? And I think that's pretty much, a kind of baseline ethos of it, isn't it? And if you, but the way you do that, you need to be able to, as you say, look after yourself, get the mental downtime, eat properly, drink properly, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, and it's the, the training and the exercise and the crossing the finish lines. That's the icing on the cake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's part of the journey, isn't it? It's, you know, it's, it's the fun of, of going and doing that with other people about reaching the, reaching the summit. It, it's, uh, you know, when you're Jan Fredino or Daniela Reef and you're top of the pile, you're always stressing about who's coming up behind you. Um, if you finish in 10 hours, you're always trying to get under nine hours. If you finish in 12 hours, you're trying to get to 10. You know, there's always something more. And at some point you have to, um, you have to draw a line, don't you, and say, no, actually, I've got to stop chasing these things and try to try to improve the process. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called The Long Win, and it's about uh, an Olympic rower Kath Bishop who felt that the whole process of just the winning mentality like you've got people who win get selected and then everybody else is a loser but that's quite destructive and that but that that also plays out in politics in war in business um, and collaboration and de- redefining success as your own personal success and maybe it is to get into the start line maybe it is achieving something you've written down on paper it doesn't you know because you're not always going to be able to set personal best, are you? And if and if that's all you're chasing, then very quickly, life becomes fairly unsatisfactory, yeah. Yeah, and that right. leads to a great deal of unhappiness. And that that comes back to I think over our time, I flipped it around from using a negative driver to unlock the the driven aspects of my personality, right? To you know you know kind of ex- achieve stuff, right? Whereas actually using a positive mindset of of trying to do things because you believe and have a passion in something you love doing something mm-hmm. yeah and then using yeah. that as an enabler um and you know uh, and i think it, it's really hard though to unpick the two and some of it's just time isn't it you just need time get to know yourself and uh, yeah what what sort of daily routines and rituals and habits do you have these days james to to keep you on track tend to yeah, stay so, mindful about where you are yeah so i um i aim to get up about five o'clock and the thought from that is that we we have quite a clear kind of end of the day of about 10 o'clock, right? So um, I've been working off about a five-cycle sleep pattern for a while now. 
Um, so thought is, you know, kind of in bed, well, probably about not half nine-ish or not nine o'clock, you know, phones go down, usually just reacting, might watch as, you know, a bit of telly or something just to, just to have, unwind a little bit. And then kind of from 10 o'clock onwards, no screens, upstairs, in bed, trying to unwind. Um, and then a plan of four cycles up around five-ish and then, you know, have half an hour to an hour in the morning where, you know, you just kind of, you get up, have a drink, sit down, do some mobility. So I'll do mobility at that point. And that's my kind of moment of peace. Yeah. You kind of quiet time where you can kind of get that mindfulness element in. So everyone does it at different points, I guess, during the day. But for me, that's quite a nice point to get a bit of calm, you know, no one's around, no one's going to bother you and do you strength and mobility, well, you know, just mobility stuff, a bit of mindfulness, then have a coffee. Um, and then usually it's, you know, a bit of an MBA, uh, MBA work for an hour or so. Um, and then probably depending on what tie shift I'm doing about seven o'clock, we'll then do a session. So, you know, run, bike or go for a swim. Um, and then usually, you know, work nine-ish. And then, yeah, evenings we try to eat at a similar time my partner emily now does um she's got a, a more regular job now which is good she was a, a sister in ed and uh was, we were doing crazy shifts so trying to match that was a nightmare but she's moving to operations now so a bit more of a kind of re- reasonable time of day now so we can eat at the same time so we get in that kind of regular pattern coming in now which is good and again it's just that that consistency and stability that then gives you the basis upon which to build so if we're now looking at the next 12 or 24 months of what we'd like to do exercise wise or event wise or whatever, you've got that, you've had that bit of rest, you're getting the basics, right? Everything lined up from on which to build. Mm. And what about your sweet spot for training? Have you found a certain number of uh, weekly hours that work best for you? Um, Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I used to really like when we would do, um, I mean, swimming, I've never really loved swimming. So, you know, three one-hour sessions a day, uh, sorry, a week's always been a nice a nice balance for us, you know, rather than doing the real kind of long-distance stuff. Um, and then, you know, what we used to do, what kind of one-hit session, essentially, or the old-school Tabata sessions on the bike, um, and then those kind of aerobic threshold stuff where you get up to like an hour, hour and a half where you're doing your two or three 20-minute sessions at threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there may be one long bike with, with a club at the weekend because that, again, it's good to do social stuff because a lot of the training that we tend to do is, you know, in the garage on your own, isn't it? And uh, you kind of forget sometimes being out with others. It's, uh, yeah, it takes a bit of pressure off yourself. You're thinking a little bit less about what you're actually doing and you um, can usually probably perform a bit better. Um, yeah, and then running, similar thing, really. Um, so we probably end up at, what, 12, 12 hours max, including a bit of strength and conditioning. Um, that's, that's nice. I feel healthy. I feel fit. Um, yeah, and it doesn't, and that's sustainable, right? Sustainability. You've mentioned that a couple of times. I think whether it's training, whether it's sleep, um, it's work, it's what, what can you do that's sustainable in the long term? You know, and I think often, I think we, we tend to take a short term approach, like what can I do in, what can I do to get ready for the next race? What can I do to do this summer? And, you know, what can I do to lose this weight? And so we pick, we pick something that's going to lead to drastic changes, which we've already spoken about in physiology doesn't really work. And, uh, we see that in nutrition as well, you know, so, uh, a popular one that I keep coming across is the keto diet. Um, to lose lots of weight quickly which you will do but um but is it sustainable uh it, it's 
keto, true keto is very, very restrictive. And for most people, it's not sustainable. And the, for the majority of people for whom it is sustainable, they've ended up there because they've come from a position of having a medical condition which requires them to eat like that. And so there's sort of like a there's like a bigger risk if it's not sustainable. But um, and, and to be fair, mate, I tried that. You know, I I, I did that for probably eight or eight or nine months, few years ago. And um, and you're quite right. It is not sustainable. It's it's you know I I actually I did Ironman France. I think Ironman Nice, um, having gone kind of as close to ketotic as I could get, and I felt great. Funnily enough, so I felt great. I got really really lean, but it's not sustainable. And the added stress it puts in your life because of the restrictions and limits it puts on. When you then add that into everything else you're trying to do, yeah, it's not worth it. And also, you know, what we've gone through a number of times, yeah, is just do the basics. You don't need to do anything fancy, yeah? Same old thing, you know, people think, well, you know, I have to have a carbon fibre bike with carbon fibre wheels and oh, I've got to get these latest, you know, I was at the pool this morning, you know, and someone had those new goggles with the computer. Oh, the, for, the form goggles, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, it's great. You know, nice things are nice, crack on, good for you. But the reality is that ain't going to make you that much quicker than doing the basics, you know, consistency, just turning up every day, yeah? Just turn up, get in the pool, get on that bike, put your shoes on. The rest of it is almost irrelevant because you've got to get out of the door in the first place, yeah? So set yourself up to be able to get out of the door and then just keep committing and doing something consistently. And if you do the basics, same with diet, yeah? Just, it's the same, it always always comes back to you, doesn't it? You know, don't eat refined food, try to minimize sugar a little bit of alcohol is fine a treat every now and again is okay and just be sensible and it's and but actually that can for some reason people find that really hard to do including me right including me to a degree i went for a first swim today in what felt like a year and you're putting on your your, your jammers right I'm like oh crikey these are these are a lot tighter than they they were before i think i've probably been on the cake a little bit too much yeah but but it's it, again it's that why people almost look for this revolutionary system in order to absolve themselves of responsibility for the simple stuff. That's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah. Well, and, and it does. And of course, um, as coaches, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I make it more complicated, that makes me look good. And people will be more interested if I've got the latest secret. Yeah. But when you get to, you know, and those coaches who've been in the game for 15 or 20 years and have acquired knowledge to go with their, uh, have acquired wisdom to go with their knowledge. So I heard somebody, I think it was Brian O'Driscoll said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that you shouldn't put it in a fruit salad. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, um, somebody else told me that with an avocado as well. It doesn't matter which, which fruit you choose, <laughs> but you've got to learn. And uh, so that's where the wisdom comes from. And the wisdom that you learn from coaching for as long as I have is that actually simple is best yeah, yeah. Um, and simple is sustainable. And, yeah. but, but I think there's a lot of people that think that, well, if I'm just selling simple and um, then the punters will wonder, well, why am I coming to you? Yeah. Well, if it's that simple, why do I need you? Well, one of the reasons we need a coach is for accountability. You know, we have a chat every week, don't we, on a Friday. Um, I think we both look forward to that chat. I have my coffee. I sit there, you know, in the sun and we chat away. We very rarely talk about training these days. We talk about more about your life and what's happening there because actually that has a huge impact on how your training and everything else is going to... Um, but, that, but see, that's because you've drilled me over 
five, six, seven years, right, to sort the bloody basics out, get that sorted. And and because I don't need the accountability, because I now love the process, so I do it anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So actually what I need now is, is, the, is the guidance and the um, the sounding board that you provide, right, to help keep me on that track. Mm. You know what I mean? And then that's why the stuff's a process, right? You know, you, when you, you, you might think you know everything, you then actually get to look behind the curtain a little bit and you realize you know bugger all, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, and you've got to start again almost. And, and that's where, you know, that kind of our working relationship has really helped because you think you know something. Well, you could just open a Try 220 book, right? Get one of those training plans for 12 weeks and off you go. That is not going to give you, unless you sort everything else out, the kind of long-lasting health and happiness that you want. Yeah, what you're talking about there is that old Dunning Kruger thing, isn't it? It's almost like the more you know, the more of it, more you realise you don't know. Oh, um, right. And then as you progress along the line, you develop the humility to realise you don't know stuff. But it's okay to say that and ask other people for help. Oh, mate, yeah. The, the more and more I learn, the less and less I know, right? And you know, I haven't really stopped learning for 38 years now. And um, you just realise every day, oh, didn't know that. But it's because your eyes are open to it. That's a mindset. Right. Well, I guess in your position as well, people think that you are the expert. You know, they come along, they're in A&E. Doctor, I've got this pain behind my knee. What is it? And uh, am I going to live? And it's like, well, actually, I don't know, sir, because I'm not a knee specialist. So, But I am going to get my friend who's a knee specialist, and he's going to come in and give you a bit of advice. And then uh, I can tell um, you your legs are hanging off, so you should be all right. Um, sorry? Yeah, I can tell you your leg's not hanging off, so we should be all right. That's yeah, uh, yeah. the part of it. Um, so just you've you've talked about the MBA. So where does that fit into the? Is that just another? Well, I've got a bit of spare time, so I need to do an MBA now. Or is there a whole um, process in place there that's looking to the future and you know career development, uh, knowledge accumulation? It's funny because I a lot of people think differently about MBA. Something they're really valuable. Something they're not. And um, and I think you're kind of self-selecting by doing one to think they're valuable, right? <laughs> um, but, but for me, it was, you know, I, I've, I felt as if, I, I feel as if I can contribute a lot more to, to healthcare beyond purely seeing patients, right? You know, and, and the, I, I think I've got a lot of skill set and knowledge that I, that I can add. And, and what I was thinking is, well, how can I bring everything that I've done together? And how can I kind of give myself not necessarily credibility, but the self-confidence to know that actually I've got a really quite well-rounded education now. And, and so I was thinking about doing an MBA for a long time. They're, they're not cheap. And for a, a lot of the time, I didn't have either the, the space in my life to do it um, or I didn't have the money to do it. And, mm. um, and I kind of, life started to settle down over the past kind of 48, well, 24 months or so. Um, and so I thought I'd scratch the itch and somehow ended up um at, at cambridge which you know i um if you ever want to realize how much you do not know <laughs> yeah tr- try and get on a executive mba cambridge cohort because good grief i mean the amount of people i'm surrounded by they're they're incredible and it's that whole thing of you know the more and more as i said the more and more learn less and less you know right um uh, but it's been and i guess doing this chat today is trying to unpick that whole imposter syndrome because no matter what you've what you've got in your life and what you've achieved you still see yourself as just look, you know what? I work hard, reasonably bright. I just crack on, right? But it, so it, it's trying to get that sense of value of yourself, right? But it, it's been fantastic because although you learn about corporate finance, accounting, that kind of stuff, but so much about it is 
is kind of understanding what makes people tick and how you lead people and organizations, right? And and so much of comes down to well, if you can't understand yourself and what your strengths and weaknesses are, what your values are, um, and how to get the best out of yourself, you'll never get the best out of everyone else that's around you, right? So so a lot of it is, has been a lot of kind of you know self-reflection, trying to understand yourself properly, um, and then learning how to understand others to get the best out of them. Um, a load of obviously work around that, but the, the the great thing really about it's been the cohort that you learn from because, and again, it's another bit of a cliche, but the MBA is really you learn more from those around you than you do from the, the textbooks, yeah, because you you know you, yeah. you up textbooks and just learn and regurgitate. But you know, there's people, Michael, that've done incredible things, and and being able to bounce ideas off people. How how do you've done this? How have you dealt with this problem? You know, um, uh, you know. You, and just learning how people, what kind of lives they've lived, yeah? You know, and, and you, you do realise, not that I've ever thought I'm really special, but you do realise, actually, you know, the way to be humbled is to to get out there and actually speak to, to people, yeah? Mm. Um, and so that's really what it's been a lot for me. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, it will hopefully kind of bring together the, the other bits I've done, you know, medicine, law, bit a bit of business, business stuff into it and combine that hopefully with the, understanding a bit more what makes me tick that um i might see where the next stage of my career goes because i'm a bit of a crossroads again um so yeah yeah interesting you've done, you've done a lot in your 40 years james haven't you really <laughs> not well yeah um yeah it's probably well yeah i, I it's funny because you said oh you don't look too bad james you know when he started this but i thought christ i feel like i look bloody awful <laughs> you know sometimes on these zoom stuff you you kind of see uh, see your little box in the corner and someone think jesus christ i look like that hard 40 years or 38 years or whatever um but yeah no it's good and you know what you're saying at the start about you know you don't have to be a chief exec or entrepreneur or anything like that to to be a high performance human it's like uh, i was in my mind i was saying you know what it'd be interesting to see in five years time replaying this and seeing where where i've gone Uh, you know what it doesn't matter because i just want to be happy yeah well by then we'll have uh, got towards 500 episodes so you'll have to go way back into the archives to listen to maybe we maybe we can do maybe we can do the 500th episode as well as a recap of your uh, your last five years yeah this this might have been in you know might be in double digits for downloads in five years then on this one <laughs> i don't think so hey listen it's been great catching up really has i appreciate you spending some time with us today uh, i know it's your day off from work and uh, the sun's shining so you're probably itching to get outside and um, get a bit of vitamin d in there and uh, and everything else so um thank you for sharing your life with us james Wardy, thanks so much mate it's been been a pleasure thank okay you. thank you great james risley thanks for being on the show thank you to james for joining me on today's high performance human podcast you can find links to everything we chatted about in the show notes below a reminder that if you're interested in being part of my swat inner circle you can enjoy a 30-day trial period for just one pound please email beth at the triathloncoach.com or look for the link in the show notes below so that's all for this week we'll be back in seven days time with another great guest but for now stay healthy and stay focused on being a high performance human in every aspect of your life <laughs>